I don't think I've had this kind of feeling of uncertainty or lack of clarity about what's happening since 9-11. It's odd, when we arrived in Paris, people were saying the season will not run its course. This cannot go till next week. And it did. The evolution of Demna Gvasalia's Balenciaga now. What do you think he was trying to say this season? I kept thinking while I was watching this show that if this is his platform for that, then haute couture is not going to know what hit it. The Kanye West moment in Paris, which was controversial. Donald Trump will always be the devil on his shoulder. But I also think that Paris is the beast he wants to conquer. Hi, this is Imran Ahmed, founder and CEO of the Business of Fashion, and welcome to a special episode of the BOF podcast. This week, I sit down with our editor-at-large, Tim Blanks, to reflect on the fashion month that was. Tim was sitting in his apartment and I was sitting in mine. We were isolated post-fashion month with the emergence of the still developing coronavirus outbreak, which has had the whole world on edge these past few weeks as fashion month continued. Of course, we talk about the coronavirus and how it changed the mood at fashion week, but we also focused on some of the most important moments of fashion month and the shows that will stand the test of time, as well as the future of what fashion week might look like as we grapple with the ever-changing world around us. So here's Tim Blanks, Inside Fashion. Hello, Tim. Hi, Imran. We're in self-isolation, post-fashion month. It's interesting, isn't it? We don't actually need to be in the same place any longer. Well, we spent so many weeks together in the back of a car. Yes. But it's it's been, to say the least, a really strange fashion month. And uh, yes. I'm glad that we're able to catch up because there's quite a bit to discuss. Obviously, there's a, a bunch of shows and um, events and all of this stuff as normal. But I, I thought we should just start by talking about how this season felt. And it started with this kind of feeling that you know people were already thinking about you know the sustainability of fashion week and what it means when like there's fires in Australia and floods and it seems like the you know I think as you put it to me once nature is turning on us and then it ended with this huge uncertainty created by the you know growing concerns around the coronavirus can can you remember a fashion month like this well, I, I think what I felt from the very beginning of the season in January with, with those terrible fires just decimating Australia and the west, uh, the east coast of Australia and everything that we were seeing, and also knowing people who were losing everything, their houses and, and, and you know, barely escaping with their lives, it, it was one of those moments where there was a, it felt like there was a supreme irrelevance to be sitting in a fashion show. I, and I think the other times I can remember a similar feeling of uh, helplessness and futility maybe uh, taking hold were, were, were during the Gulf War, the first Gulf War, and then after 9-11, I think, as the world boiled um, f fashion's traditional rationale, the celebration of beauty, uh, the offer of escape from the mundane, um, just doesn't 
doesn't seem doesn't seem substantial enough in that kind of context. But you know, then we forged on into the season and saw um, the various different ways in which fashion confronts reality. And um, obviously, there were there were some extreme high points that that uh, you know. I guess you come back to the notion that. What do human beings have in the end that, but their own creativity to, to set themselves apart from all the, the, the things that are swirling around us, kind of conspiring to drag us down and into despair? Gee, that's my dystopian monologue for the day. Did it change the way or the lens with which you perceived and critiqued the shows this season, do you think? Uh, only, only in that the shows, the tone of the shows themselves was slightly different. Um, so my, my response to, um, to, the, to the shows was calibrated to what the shows were showing me. Um, I, I, I could feel that I was wishing there, could, there was more I could do. Um, I think everybody feels, oh, I wish that I was more useful in the world when um, events, these gigantic cataclysmic events uh, are taking place. Um, and and you have to keep, I have to keep reminding myself that there is a value in um, in everything that people do and in the fashion industry whatever else happens we are extraordinarily lucky um uh, the 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 arena that we work in we are extraordinarily lucky people and we should never lose sight of that, that fact um i think there is enough pain and misery in the world uh, that we you know count our blessings as we try to live the best lives we can so i suppose yes as a sort of maybe if I'm thinking about the way I approach the shows I guess there's a much more of a philosophical challenge this season than usual and more pragmatically you know looking back knowing what we know now about this virus and how it's very likely to result in a global pandemic unlike anything we've seen since the Spanish flu according to all of the ep epidemiologists and you know experts out there do you have any thoughts on whether it was responsible for us as an industry to continue gathering in tightly packed spaces with you know limited precautions being taken around you know the everyone's talking about social distancing now you are sitting in your home i'm sitting in my home you know out of the abundance of caution but you know we just spent the past few weeks surrounded by all these people from all over the world. I mean, I put up this Instagram post the other day when I was coming back from Paris and got a real reaction. Like people started sending me messages and emails and feels like kind of touched a nerve. But you know, what do you think? Well, I, I think, isn't it one of the extraordinary ironies of human beings that, that in times of extreme stress, they want to get together they want to feel a sense of community they feel that there is a sort of safety or security in numbers 
And when you have something like an epidemic, of course, that's exactly what it um, needs to thrive on. So um, there's a sort of the human instinct versus the sort of intelligent response, I guess. I at this point, it's impossible to say whether there will be, there will come a time in the future where people will look back and say, "What the hell was the fashion industry doing in January, February, two thousand and twenty? Really, what 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 were people thinking to go on having their shows and their parties and their dinners and the?" Um, but I, I actually don't think we know at this point. Uh, it still feels to me like this is, it does feel to me like this is some kind of calm before the storm. Um, you know, you mentioned the Spanish flu, and if you look at the the pathology of that, of that pandemic, the, the way it started quite, it started as a serious thing, which then kind of paradoxically hibernated during the summer and then erupted back into life in the, the following winter. I would say the conversation we're having now um, would probably be more meaningful in six months or so. Um, I know, I, I, as far as I can tell, that's what epidemiologists seem to be most concerned about, that what happens next winter, uh, and, and then whatever happened this winter will pale by comparison. I just, you know, the, the extraordinary thing is when we arrived in Milan, two weeks ago, just over two weeks ago, there wasn't really very much talk about the coronavirus having, I mean, obviously it was, a te it was raging in China and it had become this, this enormous story, but it was still one of those things that is happening to other people. And then to have that outbreak in Italy concentrated exactly where we were just seems so, it just seems like one of those bizarre twists, you know, truth is always going to be stranger than fiction. And suddenly Lombardy in Italy becomes one of the world's hot zones. And that's where we were. And so in the space of two weeks, the world changed. And, and we've, we've, we see now these huge events, these huge celebratory events uh, over the next few months that have been cancelled, the cruise shows in far-off lands, uh, designers cancelling them. The, uh, I, I mean, it, we saw very few designers actually taking that step already. Uh, Armani cancelled, uh, APC and uh, Agnes Bay and Paris cancelled. I... I mean, it's odd. When we arrived in Paris, people were saying, "We're not going to run the, the the season. Will not run its course. Um, this cannot this cannot go till next week." And it did. And you know why it did? Because I spoke to uh, Pascal Morin at the Chambre Syndicale, and of course, in a time like this, when there's so much uncertainty about what's happening, the Chambre Syndicale was taking guidance from the Ministry of Health in France about, you know whether they were wise to continue or not. And obviously there were all sorts of business reasons to continue because there's so much investment in these huge productions that the shows have become. But also there is, you know, when I, when I see how psychologists and other people are looking at this situation, there's also this desire or this need not to create a sense of panic or fear. So the feedback that, you know, the Chambre Syndicale had from the Ministry of Health was at, uh, finally midway through Fashion Week was, 
we still think it's okay for gatherings uh, less than 5,000 people. And um, I just wonder if they, you know, if the kind of strict term around the number of people was the only way to look at it. I just Im- kept imagining all these people from all over the world, you know, attending Fashion Week, interacting the way fashion people do, which is physically affectionate and lots of hugs and kisses and, you know, intimate spaces. I just wondered if that had been taken into account. But they, you know, they were following the guidance. And I just, I guess you're right. We won't know for a while if this was actually a very risky turn of events. Well, the the, the interesting or potentially catastrophic thing now is that it's, it is all over the world. And as it retreats uh, for the summer months, um, when it, if, if it comes blazing back like the Spanish flu did in 1918, we won't be waiting for it to spread from somewhere else this time. It no. will already be everywhere. Um, I, I don't think we've even begun to fully appreciate the challenges that await us um, in the fashion industry, because that's the industry we work in, but also in every other every other industry that relies on huge crowds of people gathering together to do something, obviously the Olympic Games, but also we've seen the James Bond premiere be postponed. I mean, there's going to be, uh, well, you, you, you know, you published that story the other day about the, the businesses that will benefit from, um, from this potential, uh, you know, the, the, the notion of isolation and, and instead of, coming together the whole the whole world splintering um and i i don't know it's it sort of is a future that is often being presented to us in science fiction so uh it i i guess maybe it won't be such a surprise if it actually does come at us with all guns blazing well it's interesting if you're following what's happening in china right now because obviously you know the chinese have been living with this virus now, you know, since late December when it first started being discussed openly. And, you know, it's now early March and it, you know, our, our team in China, you know, and the, the teams of various fashion companies um, whose executives I spoke with over the past few weeks, they've all been living with this for a while and things are starting to turn in China. The number of cases being reported every day and, uh, the number of deaths are started have peaked and are starting now to decrease. You know, the only difference is that the Chinese have a completely different ability to contain and manage the disease in the in the and way control vast populations. Exactly. As well. So, like where I think um, as this as this um, continues to develop over the coming weeks and months, it's going to be really in- interesting and important to understand. You know, I think we're entering what all of the epidemiologists and public health experts are calling the, you know, we've passed the contain phase. We're now in the, the delay. Kind of delay phase. Yes, yeah. The summer months are going to be interesting for that. Well, which the summer months for us will be the winter months in the Southern Hemisphere. So you may see something happen there. Yeah. I hope not. But, yeah. In any case, we're here also to talk about the fashion season that was and amidst all of this strangeness there were you know some exceptional 
unforgettable moments from this season that are kind of imprinted uh, in my brain, certainly. But I, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the kind of themes and ideas and takeaways that, that you had from the season. Uh, one of the things that you and I touched upon was kind of, I think I was on a bus actually at Milan uh, Lenate Airport and was talking to someone on the bus from the aircraft to the terminal. And she said to me, it feels like we're all dancing on the Titanic and kind of moving around the deck chairs, the deck chairs, this kind of, and what you've called the like fan de siècle moment where, you know, everyone, and there's this doom in the air. How did that theme emerge from the shows this season? Do you think? Well, you know, that, that, that mood is, is, has been the inspiration for God knows how many books and poems and movies and operas and plays and so on for, for centuries. Uh, when, when things turn to chaos, um, then that's when the bright young things come out of their, come out of their um, nests and sort of defiantly parade their beauty and decadence in the face of despair. Um, you know, I think of the French Revolution and think of World War One. you think of uh, the, the Weimar Republic. There are all sorts of uh, examples from the past, and many of them have been huge inspirations for, for fashion over the years. I, I was particular. There are, there are funny coincidences that, that, that crop up. Last season, Dries van Noten worked with Christian Lacroix and that was a show that everybody loved. That collaboration really thrilled people. Uh, interestingly, Lacroix, in Lacroix's own career, his arrival in New York coincided with the crash at the end of the 80s, the Wall Street crash. And when New York Magazine covered his, his debut in New York, they called, the, the cover story was called Dancing on the Lip of a Volcano. And Dries' show this season had that, maintained that same element of sort of a sort of wild party element, you know, the wild, um, like a wild party in, in the Weimar Republic, or it was, it was just so extravagant and excessive and, and joyful, joyful in its sort of dark glamour. I think um, Mucha Prada at Miu Miu also carried over that same mood it was a it was except hers being the second to last show of the whole season had more of a parties over vibe I felt she had there was a sort of morning after the night before feeling in a long crinkled satin skirts and a great big overcoats kind of thrown over the, over them you know like you imagined a jazz singer leaving a club after playing all night or a or a or a nightclub singer um I, th I think that the notion of gla of glamour, uh, which was which was very strong this season, which was which was presented to us in a few ways, I think that that notion of glamour, um, defiant glamour, feels very uh, is is something that you seem to see a lot when times are so uncertain and um, and and society seems to be shaking to its core i guess defiant glamour is something that fashion does extremely well that is when it it 
that that is one they could say that was one of the justifications for its existence that its defiant glamour is there to make us feel distracted and entertained and and offer an escape route uh it's kind of the fashion industry's version of a hallucinogenic drug i guess um i think that there was also that that element i i felt this female figure who kind of towered over the season in a way the dominatrix yeah and you have when you have that sense of i mean the dominatrix represents female power female control um you know interesting in the era of me too that that we should be feeling the presence of the dominatrix uh it, it she first emerged in the fendi show which to, for me was the show of the season i just i thought that everything that that sylvia venturini fendi does extremely well which is the irony and the dry humor and the the sense of the future being blended with a touch of the past to create this provocative hybrid was was absolutely on full display in that show curiously she had come across um she'd been looking at the the movies that Karl Lagerfeld um did costumes for in his career and she had come across, and obviously Carl designed Fendi until he died a year ago, but uh, she'd come across this movie called Maitresse from 1975, which was a, say, an S&M movie made by a French director called Barbette Schroeder. It was banned in England at the time because um, it actually, they actually had film of real S&M practices incorporated into the, into the movie. And so she, she'd taken this dominatrix figure from Maitresse and made her the, the the kind of inspiration for the collection then when we get to paris we get to the saleron show and i feel the same thing though those women in latex those latex trousers and the very tailored jackets um reminded me of of and a british artist called alan jones who used to do um used to do women who looked exactly like the women from the saleron show curiously if Karl lagerfeld did the clothes for Matress. Alan Jones did the art direction. Now that was a complete coincidence. And that was just something I was kind of cooking up in my brain. But, you know, this is the way fashion, little fashion subcurrents kind of grip your imagination. Then I get to the Junior Watanabe show. And again, quite a strong dominatrix element there. And they do say three times in fashion and you have a trend. So there's a BOF trend pick for um autumn winter 2020 the dominatrix rules the other show that kind of seemed to take a kind of reaction or response to the kind of state of the world but in a different way than the kind of celebratory things we saw at Dries and Miu Miu and the kind of feminism and power of women from Fendi was the Balenciaga show, which seemed to kind of take that completely opposite dystopian perspective on the state of the world. You know, we've been tracking the evolution of Demna Gvasalia's uh, Balenciaga now for several seasons. You know, what do you think he was trying to say this season? How do you think it fits into the overall um, vision that he has for Balenciaga? I th I think that 
Demna's Demna's own story is so inextricably bound up with the the fashion that he creates. His experience of of life um, in Georgia, the the brutal things that he that he and his family went through. Uh, he has so he has a he has a a, a world view that is shaped by geopolitics and uh, the um, disposability of the little man in the face of these giant political and economic machines that grind um, human beings to dust periodically. Um, and I think if you look at his shows generally, they they his Balenciaga shows are these exercises in in giantism. They're always on a massive scale. And there's always a there's always a kind of authoritarian edge to them. And the last the last show being set in what looked like a, a parliament, um, a European parliament, just at a time when the dysfunction of governments had become headline news everywhere. This time, I think it also felt like we were in an auditorium or, or some kind of official venue, um, but it was underwater. And, I mean, the message there was, to me, the utterly timely one. I mean, incredibly timely, considering that he insisted that they planned the show a year ago, that the notion of nature, to, of nature finally saying, basta, had enough, it's over. Um, we were in the most apocalyptic scenario in his venue. But at the same time, he was showing... He was show, he showed his microcosm. You know, he loves he loves, and all forms of human life are there. Scenario: so everything from a bike messenger to a queen bee, like a, maybe even a dominatrix again, incredibly strong women with huge shoulders and looking like um, they'd um, stab you through the eye with this with a stiletto. Um, but then also representing the most vulnerable people in society, maybe even refugees. The, 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 his cast of characters was extraordinary. There were, and there were also people in the show who, looked, who physically looked like giants. I mean, they looked like, they looked like they'd stepped out of some antediluvian era, you know, where men were 10 feet tall and 8 feet wide. But... I think, and then, and then also there's some music as well, which sounds, which is just overwhelming. The, the, whole, the whole thing is such an assault on the senses. And I thought, you know, there's, a, there's an absolute fearlessness. It's really interesting to see how people just seem to be, you know, resistance is absolutely futile to that show. People just reel out of it, just wall-eyed. They're, they're just so overwhelmed. Um, he is absolutely insistent on his optimism, which I find um, I find very reassuring in one way. Um, it's less obvious to me in what he actually does, but he he's about to. I mean, next season he will he will introduce Balenci he will reintroduce Balenciaga Couture, and I, I kept thinking while I was watching this show that if this is his platform for that, then Haute Couture is not going to know what hit it because um, this show was. From beginning to end, we we went through all the plagues: the fire, the flood, the the massing birds, um, 
then there was a a beautiful moment of tranquility where the the planet floated you know like the blue marble in in deep space and then it was eclipsed so that was the final thing and a total eclipse um I also think about the photos that friends have sent me from the Blue Mountains outside Sydney five weeks ago. It was just an ash pile, the photos they were sending me. Their house was gone. Their, their, all the, the land around them was just, it looked like, a, you know, looked like a nuclear blast had happened. Five weeks later, the trees are back. The greenery is extraordinary. The, 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 the sense of rejuvenation is overpowering. Now, that's nature. And I thought that what Damner was doing with his show, with his show was, was actually glorifying the power of nature uh, and using that to underscore the ultimate insignificance of um, human beings who would try to control it, who would try to mutate it um, for their own economic interests. So you know what? I take that as a... I take that as a kind of optimistic message. You know, we we are, um, you know, like Joachim Phoenix's speech at the at the Oscars, reminding us of our insignificance and our arrogance, and assuming to um, interfere with with processes that are billions and billions of years older than we are. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I get, come back to that thing. What, what, how will this year unfold? Twenty twenty. Uh, there are these are all these are all little nuggets of of thought. These are all little seeds that have been planted that will um, maybe uh, bring about a, a change in consciousness, or maybe just hasten our demise as a species. Hmm. Well, it was it was interesting because in that set of questions that. Yeah, you were able to email him after one of the ones you sent over was asking him about, you know, how he feels about being part of a what is like a, a more than a billion euro turnover uh, brand in this industry that now a lot of people are looking at and saying is inherently sustain unsustainable because of the model that pushes for more consumption. Uh, and um, is based on driving for um, kind of obsolescence of, of products so that people want different things. They want newness is what the industry keeps calling it. And he gave you a, he gave you a kind of interesting response. He said, um, I think our growth and well-being of the planet can be very well balanced. We just need to realize that this well-being is costly and we all, need, we all have to pay for it now. Brands, consumers, everyone. I mean, it's you said in your review, you're like you weren't sure the naysayers would really be happy with that reply. No, because I think he sidestepped a little. He sidestepped that question a little bit. Yeah, you know, to to me, the billion dollar business is like the the holy grail, isn't it? In fashion, how often do you read people projecting, "Oh, we're going to be this is our next billion dollar business. We want this to be a billion dollar business." The notion of growth and sustainability or a commonsensical approach to the environment are a tiny bit irreconcilable, well, not a tiny bit. I think they're irreconcilable. 
I'm, I'm sure you can think of a, a few other businesses that are projected to become billion-dollar businesses. How do you reconcile that growth with a commitment to um, preserving the planet? Um, a, a sort of a sort of no-waste policy. Uh, I don't know. It, 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 without sounding, without wanting to be Debbie Downer about it, um, it that I find I think that challenge is so enormous for human beings and their manifold flaws. Um, how do you see that? I think it comes down to, you know, clearly consumption isn't going away in and of itself. So I think it comes down to what we consume and how we consume. And there's all of this talk and important conversation happening around new business models in fashion, which don't encourage obsolescence or which uh, lengthen the life of a product where people should be thinking how much am I going, how many wares am I going to get out of this product or this, you know, this article of clothing. But this, I think definitely this idea of buying things for, you know, short term use only to be discarded seems completely inconsistent with, you know, the way consumption of all types needs to evolve. Well, the, uh, an idea that is incredibly attractive is the notion of things being so precious that you value them too much to throw away. Yeah. And people are talking about that more. It isn't, it's, it's odd that it's, it's, it, it, would, it, it would be a logical foundation of haute couture that you know, the more expensive and beautifully crafted something is, the more inclined you are to hang on to it. So couture would be the most sustainable form of clothing. Um, most sustainable kind of clothing. I, um, I, I, I think that's that sounds that, that's very agreeable to me because w- when you have a, a designer like Lutz Huell uh, focusing on favorite things, you know, the things that you go to in your closet that you actually end up wearing all the time, and projecting that principle into a fashion collection. Um, the only problem there is if you have 20 things that you love and cherish um, and wear all the time or 50 things or 100 things, why would you see the need to add to those? That's when this whole idea of desire comes in. So um, because fashion is, is, is posited on desire and I see I want. Um, it's, it's such a... It's such a fundamental um, battle between human appetite and human ideal, you know? Um, the, the want and the can't have. You know, it makes me think that, you know, the other thing that makes things desirable for the long term, you know, you, you, do, you do think about things like haute couture, which have traditionally been at the kind of pinnacle of this industry, but there are also designers out there who are so creative and so inventive and so innovative. And you and I spent quite a bit of time this season talking about Jonathan Anderson and, you know, the things that he's been developing, you know, both at his own brand, but, but also at Loewe. We also talked about Craig Green, whose show in Paris this men's season was, I think, a really important step forward for him. And then 
that amazing installation he did for Montclair. So like in the world where you're, you know, we're trying to design things that are, or create things that are really special. It's creativity. That's an important ingredient to that too. Well, that takes us right back to the point at the beginning that, that, um, creativity becomes human creativity becomes the thing that makes us human in a way, um, that, that what we make is what we are. That's what individualizes us. And it's so interesting that, that um, the two, to me, the two most interesting and inspirational designers in fashion are both British. Well, do we, Jonathan's Irish, but I guess we um, co-opt them, don't we? So Jonathan Anderson and Craig Green, who... At a, at a time when, um, you know, we were told so much about fashion needing to be an experience that as fashion becomes more experiential, it, it maintains its relevance. Um, they are both designers who totally understand how to layer emotion and craft and narrative and all these different elements to make something which is not immediately accessible. You have to think about what they do. It, it, what, what you see, you need to think about it afterwards to get what you get from what you see. I, I find that they're, they're like reading a really good book or seeing a really good movie when I go to collections by those two. And I think Jonathan this season with Lueve and with his own show um, was just on, in, in the absolute, on the absolute top of his form. I think in when we talk about that why we love them and also how we just appreciate that the pure creativity um imagine it the imagination and the originality in what they do um what i really love this season and something i can come to um with a sort of wholehearted um spring in my step not dogged by shadows of gloom and doom was the dance element that was in the season um the way designers use choreographers that's really some of the most um i go back to the uh, men's show with uh, francesca risso's show for mani and jun takahashi's show for undercover the choreography in those shows was stunning mark jacobs show in new york working with carol armitage was breathtaking and it was over almost before you'd before it had started. So it was, I, it stays with me. I, th I hope I dream about it. I can't remember my dreams at the moment, but I really hope I dream about it. And we saw dance elements in other shows like Issey Miyake as well. Um, people who are making, it, it's like a context. It's like creating a context for, for fashion that takes it somewhere else, somewhere very beautiful, very uplifting, very profound, um, and that to me was one of my thrills. I also thought in a, in the same vein, I thought the music this season was amazing too. Um, and I know people endlessly tease me about the fact that I seem to review music sometimes in <laughs> clothes, but you know, thank God Alessandro Cortini was doing all those soundtracks for all those shows because it just, uh, it just, elevates things and and what were the shows that you well he he 
he worked on, I mean, obviously all these shows have musical directors like Michelle Gobert does Fendi and John Gosling does McQueen, but he, uh, Cortini is part of Nine Inch Nails and he played live at Fendi. He did music for Marnie and he, 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 had, he did music for uh, Alexander McQueen. Oh, a show that was exquisitely beautiful in a new way from a designer, Sarah Burton, who always does beauty extremely well, but this time made it, I don't know, she, it felt like she'd, brought it down to a much more primal level. I, I found her show um, extremely haunting, like I was watching a wonderful magical ritual, and Alessandro Cortini's music helped a lot. As I, as I kind of prognosticate here about all the kind of windy things I prognosticate about, the fact remains that fashion is still one place where you get to see so many different creative impulses joined in one common endeavor, um, which is obviously a very optimistic, uh, a very optimistic point to um, wrap up my feelings about the season. It's, and it's, it is the clothes and it is the accessories and it is the hair and the makeup and the music and the, and the other elements that are being introduced like dance and, and with Balenciaga, like this incredible this, le this level of theatrical production that is just absolutely epic. Um, if this is the chord that fashion is striking in, I mean, people were saying, do you think there'll be a seat? Do you think there'll be a, another season? Do you think there'll be shows next year? Uh, you know, the uncertainty right now is just is just completely off the scale. Um, I just I thought afterwards, if if this was going to be the last season that we ever had, we ever sat together, all of us in a, one physical space to see a fashion show, then there were some amazing things to remember, ending on Louis Vuitton with Nicolas Gasquier's incredible production there, which embraced history. And, you know, ultimately, that's what's happening right now, history. Yeah, we're right in the thick of it. And I think we'll look back at this time Hopefully in six months or so when Fashion Month comes around again. Uh, and this will be like a really pivotal moment in our history, not just as an industry, but in the world. I don't think I've had this kind of feeling of uncertainty or lack of clarity about what's happening since 9-11. I remember being at fashion shows during the financial crisis. And yes, that was like a big financial shock, but there's something about this moment that just takes me back to 9-11 where we're all kind of wondering. It's like a black swan. It's like this thing that comes out of nowhere that nobody sees coming that, you know, in theory we're prepared for, but in practice we're actually grappling with all sorts of things that are just very, very difficult to understand. What would you like to see from the, what kind of response would you like to see from the fashion industry now? What do you think a healthy response that would that would shape uh, that would shape a future of of all uh, all possible futures? What do you think that would be from worst case scenario to best case scenario? Well, I think we really need to leave behind the legacy of the way things have always been done and start with a blank page. You know, this industry is not going anywhere, and there's certainly amazing reasons for which. Fashion Week does have a clear purpose. And, you know, we've discussed the creativity and innovation and sense of community today. 
Um, but for me, like the best part of Fashion Week is always like, you know, the conversations, the interactions, the, the, the sense of bringing a group of people together who work in an industry about which we're also passionate and about which, you know, most of us don't work in fashion because it was going to be the most lucrative thing to do. Most of us work to fashion, work in fashion because we were drawn to its creativity and innovation. And I, I still see a really important role for Fashion Week in terms of, you know, being a platform for the incredible creative talent we have and for being a way of bringing the community together. But I do wonder, do we need four weeks, two times a year, plus the men's shows, plus couture to have that sense of community? You know, do we really need to be flying around on airplanes, attending cruise shows uh, every few months? Um, you know, what is, what is it that if we could start with a blank page and redesign Fashion Week from scratch, trying to keep the things that make it amazing, but also maybe let go of the things that don't really make sense anymore, I think that's what I'd like to see. But I don't know how we even have that conversation. There's no governing global governing body for this industry. And I feel like there's still so much of the industry that's focused on these, you know, kind of like historical, geographic, regional ways of thinking about the fashion industry and the ways of making decisions when what's become really clear from this crisis is we're in a globalized industry, in a global world that's more connected and more dependent and more interconnected than it's ever been. And so we need to be able to make decisions that way now. And still the way everything's being done feels very isolated. It's interesting because I think, you know, the fashion show will become a lightning rod. The actual physical fashion show, I think, will become a lightning rod for a lot of pro and con arguments. And you know, in the past, when it seemed like maybe shows wouldn't happen, it was a choice. People say, oh, I don't need to do a fashion show. I'm not going to do a fashion show. They're, they're too expensive. And we can do other, we can do something else that, that takes their place. But I thought it was interesting this season where it actually seemed like it wouldn't be a choice that people didn't do fashion shows. It would be an actual sort of edict or it would be a, the only sane response to a situation that, that, that to go on and go ahead with shows would be willful. It's interesting how many people said, yes, but fashion could never do without fashion shows, physical fashion shows. And um, that, that will be, I think, a, a, a test, a, a, a big challenge for the future. We've, We've seen the, the sort of closed circuit um, production. There's you know, the idea of digital showrooms, you know, selling collections. So designers technically don't need to physically offer them to an audience of 500 or 1,000. But I just wonder if the shows go, you know, whether the soul goes. That might be very old school thinking. But um, it just felt to me that that, with the shows under under a, a distinct threat going forward, um, how people feel about that? I think the scrutiny is good, and I think rethinking things is good. I think it's constructive, um, and I certainly hope that there's a role or a reimagined role for fashion shows in this new age of, you know, 
heightened awareness around the climate emergency, you know, more, you know, if we're entering a, an environment of a potential global recession, which a lot of economists are fearing at the moment, then being more focused on optimization and efficiency and productivity. And also in the short term, thinking through how we as an industry interact with each other while this looming epidemic is bubbling underneath the surface, just ready for more outbreaks. Who knows where the next one's going to be? So yeah, I mean, we should end a little bit, Tim, by talking about the uh, the Kanye West moment in Paris, which you know was was controversial because of some of the things that Kanye has been talking about in recent years. Um, but as we went backstage and got ushered into that secret passage to see a preview of the show, you know, this the day after he had done that Sunday service um, presentation on Sunday morning, it really it really did kind of stand out as a moment to discuss like what do you make of that well he uh i i guess uh, the, i prefer to focus on the sunday service because that was where he brought his gospel um his sunday morning gospel um service to paris because as he said uh his job as a good christian is to spread the word of the lord um whatever you think about his politics, and obviously, what can you think about his politics? All those people um, in that celebratory um, moment were were that felt significant, um, not because of him, but because of the actual um, event. And to be followed the day after that by Asemiaki's show, which had a similarly spiritual, um, communal um, bent was quite telling. You know, I thought that, that was an interesting coincidence of events there, especially because we went out of that mood into Demna's fire and brimstone. I don't quite understand um, Kanye coming back to Paris. Obviously, fashion is, in a way, it's like his bete noir. His sneakers do insanely well, but he's never really cracked... Um, cracked Paris, basically. It's like Sisyphus rolling the boulder up the hill. Paris is the mountain that, that Kanye must, that Kanye feels compelled to climb. So even as everybody else is fleeing, going home to launch their self-isolation, he arrives with an enormous entourage and does a show in Oscar Niemeyer's building, the communist headquarters. He, we know he loves um, design and that's about the most designed building in Paris and um, talks about what he's planning to do with the collection and how he is just every single item of clothing in the show is is, in, is an, a new invention which will become a huge influence on other designers and he said we would see that influence expand over the next few months um, feel a little bit like you've stepped through um, the looking glass into an alternate reality. Um, I, as I said, would prefer to treasure the, the, the spectacle of those people singing um, Carmina Burana in um, the theatre the, uh, in the north of Paris. Um, the, there's 
spirit and joy there. And I, the other event was, um, I thought, just confusing. Yeah. I mean, it was a bit bizarre the way the whole thing rolled out. Um, but the fashion industry showed up in droves. And that's, you know, he gets all the journalists. That's Paris. He, he, and they come and they court. They court him. And he's done this before. And it just, I think, in a strange way, like he dedicated his life to God, um, clearly. Uh, but as I, as I wrote when I was writing about it afterwards, you know, Donald Trump will always be the devil on his shoulder. And, um, but I also think that, you know, Paris is the, the beast he wants to conquer. Yeah. It's his ultimate nut he wants to crack. Like he's just, yeah. eight years yeah. later, he was back after having kind of left with his tail between his legs the first time around. And um, anyway, it was. Uh, and he does it, in, he does it in Kanye time, you know, he, it's years and there's no sort of seasonal thing it's just years years pass he has another go and you know that's uh he does what he does indeed well on that note thank you for your thoughts tim i feel that if we're in an uncertain time i can hear my voice in my ears with these headphones on and my voice sounds very uncertain <laughs> so i feel um i feel we'll have a much clearer picture a year from now, I'd be very, very curious to know what this conversation will be about. Um, we're on the brink right now. And whether we soar or crash, I don't think we'll know for um, a while. You just have to take it literally one day at a time as all of this develops. Um, but let's see. And uh... sitting, in our, sitting in our solitary splendor, Yes, uh, none of you listeners will be able to see, but Tim is sitting in his apartment. I'm in my apartment. We just, I decided to isolate myself post Milan Fashion Week. So just being responsible. I'm wearing PJs from the plane. <laughs> Amazing. Well, that's all for Inside Fashion this week. I'm Imran Ahmed, founder and CEO of the Business of Fashion. Thank you for listening. Thank you to the amazing and erudite Tim Blanks for all of his interesting reflections and observations. And um, we hope you'll tune in next week for the next episode of Inside Fashion. Bye-bye. Bye. If you've enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe, give us a rating, and you might be interested in joining the Business of Fashion's global membership community, BOF Professional. Our members receive exclusive deep dive analysis regular email briefings, as well as unlimited access to our archive of over 10,000 articles, our new iPhone app, biannual special print editions, and all of the online courses and learning materials from BOF Education.